So, why are people such jerks? Well, why I think something about that question is how often it's the most natural thing that comes into my head. For example, I never...
Shouldn't all be different than me looking at the guy on the sideline and saying, oh boy, thank you, that I'm not the biggest jerk as him, and maybe I should not be climbing even though he's a jerk. Shouldn't it actually change how I look at him? This is the reason why I ask that question. There's a passage where Jesus is talking to some people and they ask him a question. The question they ask him is essentially this. It's a great question. They say, sum up everything. What's the point? Essentially, that's the question I ask him. What's the point? And he says, easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. And they cry, well, you a connection with God. You know, He loves you, you love Him. That's a good answer. And then Jesus asks him, but the second is like it. It's really interesting. He doesn't say, oh, well, by the way, the second is probably what you do. The second is like it. It's of the same kind. And that is love your neighbor as yourself. I find that to be a fascinating thought. Because, quite honestly, we didn't have that. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I asked you to fill in that. Love your neighbor. Most of us would fill that in as more than yourself. Right? Doesn't that, that seem like the spiritual thing we should do? Love your neighbor more than yourself. Don't think of yourself so much. Think of other people. You think of yourself too much. Think of other people. Love your neighbor more than yourself. Jesus takes a, either a realistic or a true view of what love should look like and says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now this may in fact be a time off. Because it asks this question, how do you love you? And for some of you, that is a desperate question, quite honestly. And if you love your neighbor as you love you, they're in for a world of hurt. For others, if you love your neighbor as you love yourself, they're going to be treated like a queen. <laughs> to be honest. I think what's fascinating about the song that Chris wrote is he shows that sort of ambivalence and how the view of self can be. And we kill and we care. Somewhere in between those two. We kill and we care. How do I love me? And not be narcissistic. I honestly think you're a warehouse and so for right or wrong, for good or ill, you'll hear me talk about the self. Because I honestly think understanding who God is and understanding who we are at the core of living life well. Get those two down, you just want to live well. Get those two lost, like them all. <coughs> I am with, with uh, some of my students, I, I gave them in the Queens, I gave them an extra credit assignment. And the extra credit assignment was to have them read one of my favorite books, which is Walker Percy's book, Lost in the Cosmos, which you've heard me talk about. And Lost in the Cosmos is a book about the nature of the self. It's a faith self-help book. I find it hysterical. Most of them did not. <laughs> and I would have said, oh, are you kidding me? That's the most boring book I've ever read. I'm like, but then I said, I said, read this book, extra credit, and then write a two, three-page reflection on it. What did, what, did it what did it tell you? And most of the papers I got were something like this. I guess some people struggle with who they are. I'm thankful that I really know him. I believe in myself. And, and I thought, wow. <laughs> Just wait. <laughs> Because you've got me an exploration, you know it's not that simple. And so when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, it's like, okay, this is not going to be easy to do. <coughs> because I first got to figure out what that looks like. Well, I'm going to look at a passage today where 
about reading Paul, and he writes it, he wrote one of the books he wrote in the New Testament. It's called First Timothy, and it's a, it's a letter that Paul wrote to a young, uh, young apprentice of his named Timothy. And in it, you hear Paul's story, his self-reflective story, of how he came to understand who he was. And uh, this is what it says. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Now, by the way, if you don't know Paul's story, this isn't hyperbole. This is not exaggeration for effect. This is actually true. He was bright, uh, well-educated, uh, privileged, and he also was pursuing early converts to Christianity in order to have them killed. He was a legal prosecutor, trying to capture them because he thought they were dangerous and something ought to be done about them. He was in the right, and they were the other. It's, by the way, I think it's almost unarguable that the core of conflict in all of humanity is centered around one concept, us and the other. If somebody else is the other, we have license to do all sorts of things to them. Because they're outside of the right. They're not correct. They are the other. And the truth is, we've seen this as people will never be able to love your neighbor unless you come to believe that they are not unlike you. That they are not the other. You and they are the same. So Paul is actually not using hyperbole. And he said, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now that's a beautiful sentiment, but there's a certain part of it where you look at it and go, okay, that seems pretty straightforward. It's sort of like the story you hear. I was a bad guy. God showed me mercy because he's gracious. And now I have love in my heart. I mean, it's sort of straightforward. And you look at it and go, oh, okay, you know, we've heard, we've heard stories like that. I mean, you've heard my story that I was a someone who was in all sorts of things that were perhaps not appropriate. And now, I'm really the epitome of citizenship and virgin morality. And you've seen that happen. <laughs> and apparently deception. <laughs> but then he takes another level. The next phrase, the next verse, opens up a whole other can of words. And he says this. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. So I really want you to get that. Here's something you can trust. And you don't need to accept the will of This deserves full acceptance with heart and with mind and with soul. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Again, so far so good. But who am I the worst? Here's a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But who am I the worst? I really think as Paul was writing this, because, you know, he's like us. He's writing this, and he's putting that phrase down. Jesus came to the world to save sinners, and he's caught up short, and he says, and I'm, I'm the worst. And you think, okay, that's not now we're in the area. I heard it clearly. It reminds me of, there's like a line, in, uh, it's really not a very good movie. It's called Two Weeks Notice, but I find it hysterical. It's Sandra Bullock and um, Hugh Grant. And there's a line where Sandra Bullock's character looks at you, Grant, and says, you are the most selfish person in the world. And he says, oh, that's just silly. You haven't even met every person. <laughs> I sort of look at this with Paul. Oh, that's just silly. Of whom I don't know where you haven't even met everybody. 
say this with integrity. Now, is it empirically true? Oh, who knows? Is it the true settlement of his heart? I think yes. How is this true? Because he knows him better than he knows anyone else. He actually has inside information. He knows his words. He knows his intent. He knows even as he's telling people that's not what he meant, that that's actually what he meant. He knows the thoughts he's had and he's tried to bury and let nobody else know about. He actually knows his heart. He's the closest to himself, closer to himself than he is to anyone else. And so actually, I think he looks at his life and he looks through his actions and his intents and his thoughts and his words and he says, I guess maybe there are other people worse, but it's hard to imagine that. Because based upon what I have before me, I am caught up short with who I am. Now this to me is a fascinating flip of comparative living. You know, we talked earlier in the series about you know, how do I compare other people and our tendency to knock other people down and make ourselves feel better. Paul flips it. And he compares himself to other people and he says, they can't be that bad. Seriously. See, the early bad news of the gospel, the story of redemption, is that people, you and I, actually have to stop and be honest about who we are. And we don't like to do that. We prefer just to skip over that. Of who I am, the, you know, the 67th percentile of the best people in the world. Maybe you. You know the statistics. It's like 80% of people believe in hell and 2% believe in hell here. Everybody believes statistically that they're slightly above average, which statistically can't be true. <laughs> Something about the gospel completely reoriented that approach. Where Paul is not saying I'm slightly above average. He's saying my guess is I'm significantly below average. Now, how can he say that? And how does it change his life? He can say that because he believes, as he says those words out loud, that his soul is still okay. The terror of being honest about our brokenness is what happens when somebody else knows it. Then where, where do I go? We hide for fear that if somebody actually knows the stuff, they will clearly walk away. I, I have said it, I say it joking, but it, it honestly isn't that funny. My wife and I have been married for 20 years, and in spite of that, she still loves me. And honestly, I look at our relationship and I say, that's, that's been some real work on her part. Because I know what I'm like. And she, better than anybody else in the world, actually knows what I'm like. Not the persona, not the upfront appearance. She actually knows me. And so can you imagine? what it feels like when she, who actually knows me, leans over and puts her arm around her. Right? That's powerful. Because based upon who I see myself to be, she has every reason to push me away. 
20 years in. She's so awesome. I think she might actually be more. And that's a profound credit to what God has done in her life. Now, the reality is, Dan and I love each other very imperfectly because we got ourselves. But the power of the gospel is God doesn't love us imperfectly. Paul can say, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners to come out of the worst, and he throws that before God and finds himself embraced. And finds God nodding his head and saying, Good, good, that's the whole point. And you realize your brokenness, but you also see is that I am a God who won't forsake you. And I see the hope and possibility in you. Yes. Yes. You are that dark. But the brightness to which I'm taking you is stunning. And so in the gospel, in the story of the redemption of people like you and I, who can honestly say, of whom I'm the worst, to believe and to know that God cares about us that much, to forgive us, but then to say into our lives, see what we're like. Not what we saw, see what we're like, and say, and I can take you to beauty, because that's really who you were made to be. Well now, for the first time, I can actually look at my soul and go, I'm being made for hope. I'm a being who's broken. And I'm desperately loved. Now, how does that change how we view the world? Change everything. We got in the sidelines. Is he the other? He's just like me. Should I do that exact thing? about the things that he likely has not? Sure. How about the guy I met a couple of weeks ago? Is he unlike me? No. You see, the problem with the gospel is you actually come to believe people are like us. They're not the other. There is no the other. We're commonly bound in Beings being the image of God were fallen and desperately need grace. And if we receive that grace, our lives become transformed into you. This affects everything. It affects how I deal with my kids. It affects the expectations that I put on them because I think it'll make me look better. It affects how I deal with my spouse. It affects how you deal with your Co-workers, the one you know who screwed you over last week. They are not the other. You and they are alike. I had a moment this week. I just didn't expect. I really didn't. And I have been able to nurse a grudge with somebody for like nine months. In fact, I think I can calculate. Began in August. I've been able to nurse this grudge. You know what? He was selfish, he took advantage of it. So what I did is I took him and I put him in a box. I no longer had to care about it. Because look at who he was. I was able to treat him with disrespect, I was able to warn him all I could be simple. But I was able to keep the distance and not care about it. And I was fully justified. Because he was that kind of person. And then this week, as I'm going through this, I was going, oh, you've got to be kidding me. For nine months, I held a grudge about something that I did, which, quite honestly, I've done things a hundred times worse. 
and I have no idea why he did it. I don't know the core of what's going on in his life. And I thought, is this how I've been treated in the gospel? As God looked at me and said, you know what? You did that one thing. It was totally inappropriate. I'm going to keep you in a distance. That is what we think. The gospel tells us that's not true. That the list is hundreds and thousands long. And yet, despite that, So I saw it subtly change me when I saw him this weekend. It was honestly pleasant. Yeah. And realized when I had been. Wasn't off. Also It's the reality of realizing who I am. Just need somebody to care about. 
Baptized, I want you to see your story in the video. 